We, uh, at the church here, we often will do a series on a book of the Bible, and uh, every week make a point of sort of zoning in on, on the scripture and, and sort of gearing towards God's word and what we want to, what we want to learn, what we want to hear from him. And often we, we do a whole book. Uh, this year we've done Gospel of Mark, and we did the Great Commission out of Matthew, and then you may remember over the summer we did Habakkuk and a little bit of Proverbs. Um, but we also like to take a, a topic uh, with the Bible sort of close in hand and work through uh, what we believe and why we believe on, on a particular point. And as September marks the return to school for our children, the children all went, hey, slash, oh no, and the parents went, perhaps not. But as the children are, are heading back to heading back to school, heading back to learning sort of basic tenets of education, uh, we as a church are going to be studying the basic tenets of our faith uh, in a new series uh, based on the Apostles' Creed. Now, creeds are uh, like concise, uh, shorthand kind of summary statements of beliefs. They're not intended to replace the Bible at all, but they summarize and they point to. Uh, the truth of Scripture. Throughout history, the creeds played a really important role. Often, if you were going to be baptized, you had to learn uh, the creed. Um, But perhaps more intensely, when heresy would arise and people would start believing or teaching things that seemed to be untrue with Scripture, uh, church leaders would hammer out the creed to really sort of defend and define uh, the faith. And perhaps most importantly, even then, sort of baptismal passage and, and the heresy uh, defense, is creeds can be this great tool for us as Christians to let the truth of Scripture sort of deepen in our hearts as we, as we say them and as we recognize, yes, this is what I believe, why do I believe it, sort of working through that sort of thing. Often they're said corporately, kind of like a public affirmation of faith. We're going to do that in a little bit. Um, but they can also be said sort of privately, and like, I, like I said, it's almost like allowing the truth of Scripture to sort of deepen in our hearts. Now that practice of having a creed or a statement of faith is definitely not new. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Israel's Scriptures, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, we find the Shema. This was sort of Israel's uh, statement of faith. Very important for them. That the, the hero of the Shema is to hear. And it starts, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It goes on from there. But faithful Jews all across the centuries daily confess the Shema. They would say this every day. Many still do. And it's part of confessing a unique belief in one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And this was very distinct for them as they were living especially when you're reading biblical times in the Old Testament, the nations around them are often polytheistic, right? Babylon, Cana, uh, Assyria, etc. Many gods, many idols. And Jews, by, by saying their creed, by, by saying the Shema, are reaffirming their belief in Yahweh, the one God who uh, made the world out of his great love and goodness, not in a sort of cosmic battle, where he sort of slays something and then that becomes the earth, or he get, you know slays some bad guy and then that bad guy becomes some other thing. No, no. Uh, for, for, for Israel and for us as Christians, God alone is God. There's no competition here. And our creation story is quite unique because it doesn't include any sort of cosmic battle. 
and when you compare it to other stories at the time. So God uh, is one, and he invites uh, people, invites us as humanity to partner with him in, in living out his goodness, participating in his mission in the world. So the Shema, sort of an ancient creed, if you're thinking of what creeds are, it distinguished Israel as Israel, right? It's really unique. It's different. It sets them apart. And it reminds them in their personal devotion, as they would say it and meditate on it, uh, reminds them of who they are, reminds them of who God is, uh, reminds them of who they are in the world. What does it mean to follow this God? And then we get similar passages in the New Testament, like 1 Timothy 3.16 says this about Jesus. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And that's likely an early creed or early statement of belief. All that to say, Scripture itself shows how people gather and affirm these early statements of faith. They would take the truths and, and sort of solidify them, summarize them in these short statements. And we see the same thing happening in the Apostles' Creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed, not because the Apostles wrote it, but it, it, it summarizes faithfully the teaching of the Apostles uh, uh, that they passed on, that Jesus gave to them. So we're going to be studying this creed sort of phrase by phrase over the next eight weeks. And each week I want to trace its biblical roots and also ask, do we believe this? And perhaps most importantly, what actual practical difference does that belief have in my life? Why does it matter? What's at stake? So, do you have a bulletin? If you do, the creed is written in bold at the bottom. I invite you to pull that out. And I think if we're able, we were going to put it on the, on the overhead, but I don't know if we have, if we have that ability. I think... Brian just is, oh, yeah, there he is, he's got it there. Would you stand with me? And we will say this creed as a way of affirming our faith together, and then I'm going to, we're going to look at just the first line today. Do we have it there, Brian? We do. There we go. Let's say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Who was, oh, there we go. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. And you'll notice in your bulletin, uh, this is small c Catholic, so you might go, what does that mean? Oh. Uh, Catholic just means kind of one common worldwide church. When we use Catholic in that sense, thanks Brian, brilliant. It means one worldwide church, sort of the universal church is in one church. We believe one group of believers who are saved by Christ. When you have a capital C, capital R, capital C, Roman Catholic, you're referring to that sort of denomination itself. Do you see the difference? Brilliant. I'm not going to labor that point anymore. Today, we believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I want to focus in on this. I'm going to do this in three points. First, what does it mean to believe? 
Second, what does it mean that we believe God is a father? And thirdly, what do we mean by creator of heaven and earth? So first, I believe. I think to begin the creed in this way, folks, I believe, tells you, it tells you the following words are really important. What do you believe? Why? How do you know it to be true? And as Christians, folks, we can say this is true because we believe in the trustworthy account of eyewitnesses who, who were there, who were there with Jesus, who walked with him, that there's a faithfulness in what's passed on biblically uh, that's written for us and that we can then uh, have for ourselves. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I, for what I received, I pass on to you. As of first importance, Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. So our Christian beliefs, folks, they've stood the test of time. That this is a, a faithful account of what's true. And you have to remember, two people have died defending this, defending this faith. And what we believe, the core essentials of the faith, um, they're not up for grabs, folks. They don't sort of change with the whims of generations. Uh, this Apostles' Creed uh, would have come out, uh, was getting developed sort of 400, 600 AD. People have been saying this for 1,500 years. This isn't new. Um, and some of the language might seem a little strange to us, but this has been faithfully passed down. Like I say, it's not up for grabs. Here's an example. My son, Rowan, loves to rearrange the furniture. Let me tell you. There are days I come home. We have this, we have this cabinet thing with like buckets that come out. It's like here, buckets that come out, and the, all the toys are in them. And he will pull them out and make barriers. He will like section off whole whole parts of the house are suddenly off limits. And uh, and you can't just step over them. No, oh no, you have to open the door. You have to you have to take the bucket and it swings this way, and then you can go through. It's all very particular. Um, also. You may, and this may have been with your kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, you come home, the kitchen chairs, oh no, it's a train, right? There they are. Also, Rowan has this easel that he draws faithfully every day, the mill, and the dam with the rapids. This is his favorite thing to draw, and plays. But Noah cannot touch it, oh no. The bench is put in the way. The other chair, moved there, no, no. If he hears Noah's God marker and he's clacking on it, he'll come ripping into the kitchen and stop. Some things move around at the whims of others, but there's some things that Rowan cannot move. He's told very quickly if he tries to. He can't move Mom's stool. The ottoman that she puts her feet on as she's feeding Will. Oh, no. No, no, no. That stool does not move. And if it's time to feed Will... Time for nursing. Rowan will bring the stool back. There's also some other things Rowan can't move, as much as he may like to. He can't move the walls, <laughs> thankfully. He can't move the floor. He'd like to change lights sometimes. He'd like to move everything in the garage around. But there's some things Rowan just can't move. He can't move the foundation. Folks, in the same way in the church, there's, things, there's, there's trappings that may change. We've changed our pews, right? With these chairs, which are pretty cool. We've changed the carpet. We changed stuff up here on the stage. Um, 
I'm not the pastor who was here before me, right? Leadership's changed. Paint colors changed. Our congregations changed over time. The instruments we use to worship have changed over time. But the foundation of what makes the church the church, the core beliefs don't change. They are set. And they don't get sort of up for grabs at the whims of each generation. There's opinions on things we may tweak. We may adjust slightly. But when it comes to the core truths of the Christian faith, we want to remain biblically faithful. We don't shuffle the furniture, so to speak, on the incarnation or on the cross or on the resurrection. Oh, no. On what the Bible is and its authority. Oh, no. That does not get touched. We may change the color of the walls. It honestly doesn't matter. But what we believe about Jesus really does. So by saying the creed together, we're recognizing, this isn't just my personal beliefs, we're saying it together, um, it's not just, this is my truth and you have your truth, this is the truth. It's incredibly politically incorrect. This is true, period. And this is what we believe. And more than that, we're called to respond to it. Um, We're united in the shared confession, folks, that's what our believing means. It's, it's a lot more than just sort of a mental assent, like I believe that these are facts that I think about. It means, um, do I trust this? Do I trust that Jesus lived and died? Does it make a difference in my life? I have an illustration for this, and I need Keith, would you come? There's a difference between simply acknowledging facts, sort of saying a creed, coming to church, and actually trusting in Jesus. For instance, I trust, I know, that Keith is there. I hope he's there. I know Keith's here. It's another thing for me to actually trust in Keith. In the same way we can know things about God or say things about God, it's another thing to put our trust in God. I am not trusting that he's there until I actively put my faith in Keith. I hope he's there. We used to do this in Sunday school, right? The old he's there. Until I fall backwards. Are you ready for me? Until I fall backwards. I, I'm not really actively trusting in Keith, am I? I just believe he's there. Keith, I'm falling backwards. Are you ready? You said your back was hurting. Okay, good. Here I go. There I go. Woo! Down I go. Thank you, Keith. Until I can trust Keith. Thank you, Keith. Well done. There we go. So, funny. Until I actually put my trust in Keith, it's something different than just acknowledging he's there. Folks, in the same way, you can believe things about God or Jesus or come to church and say nice things and believe nice things about him uh, or about yourself or whatever. But until you've actively put your Put it to work. Actually, put your faith, put your trust to practice. It doesn't really mean a whole lot. Do you see the difference? I can trust he was there, and he was. Thank you, Jesus. It's another thing to actually rely on him, to trust him. And that is what the creed is intended to do. To not just be something you say mentally, that you, I believe in these things, but that we actually walk them out. I had a conversation with Ken Parker about this. He said... There's a difference between mentally, you know, having some beliefs about God 
and bowing the knee. I thought that was really good. It's the difference between saying, yeah, I have some faith in God, it's for this vague thing, and then surrendering my life to him and actually trusting him, being willing to fall back on him, as it were. C.S. Lewis has this great picture of this. He said, sometimes we, when we invite Jesus into our life and we have beliefs in Jesus, it's like we, it's like we invite him into the front room of our house. And so we might run around and sort of like tidy it up and put the cushions on the couch, you know, and, and spray the breeze and vacuum the rug or something. And we kind of get it all tidy and then we invite Jesus into the front room that we prepared for him. And it's all very lovely. And we think, Jesus, just stay here in this room. And then we turn around and find Jesus has started into the kitchen. And then he's up the stairs into the bedrooms. And suddenly he's opening the closets in our hearts that we would much rather him not go into. Jesus wants all of us folks, not just the front room, not just a vague sort of mental ascent that he's got, but he wants all of them. And it makes a difference that we trust in him. I believe. I believe what? I believe first God, the Father Almighty. We believe in one God, folks. It means that the identity of God's not a mystery. It's not many gods. It's not no God. It's not the universe. It's not a pantheistic God where God is everything. No, Christianity asserts there's one true God alone. And also this, that he is a relational and personal being. It's not the force from Star Wars, which is no sort of personal being. It's a personal being. And it's important to note that the God in whom we believe is triune. In fact, if you notice in the creed, it starts with Father, the largest section is on the Son, and then moves to the Spirit. And we'll talk more about that as we go. We'll unpack that later. But that's a distinctly Christian belief. The God who is one is also three in one. He's not a distant deity. He's not just an impersonal power. It's not as though he has no personality or purpose. But he is our Father, he is the Son, and he's the Spirit. What do we mean by Father? I think back to, to Jesus teaching the disciples to pray where he uses words like Abba. It's this wonderful sense of closeness that Jesus described with Father, a relationship to God. It's like saying Daddy. Um, unlike other faiths, God's often distant and impersonal. But this creed, folks, reminds us the truth of Scripture, that Christians believe God uh, is actually one we can know, and more than just know him, that he invites us into a relationship with him. That's where Paul goes in this Acts passage, this reading that we had from Acts 17. He says, God's actually created us, he's given us life, uh, he establishes nations, this is 17 verse 26, he's determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling places, the sense that God upholds human history, he's at work in the world, and in nations. And then he says that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet, says Paul, actually, we don't just have to kind of feel in the dark to hopefully get to God. In fact, he's not far from any of us. Verse 27. This great truth that God is knowable and that God loves you. He actually loves you. All of us have dads. Uh, some of our dads, some of our earthly fathers, have failed you uh, in really big ways. That's just the truth. All of our fathers, folks, I mean, I, I have a fantastic dad, but all of our fathers, even me as a dad, 
I'm going to fail at something, at some point. I won't be the dad that I wish I was. But God the Father, He will never fail you. He loves you. Sometimes it's such a hard thing for us because we have the idea of our earthly fathers in our heads. Sometimes that relationship's not good. It's hard to imagine God as a father because we have all that baggage, that mental baggage of what our dads were. But the father loves you just as his own. When, folks, when you believe in him, he adopts us as his children. Sarah and I watched this movie a couple weeks ago. It's about this family that adopts. First, they want to foster. They end up adopting by the end, but... They foster these three kids, these two young kids and then this teenager. And the young kids are super excited about it. They never really grew up. The dad's totally out of the picture. They never really grew up with their mom. Um, kind of have this vague relationship. They're so, they're so excited when someone actually shows them love, right? They're just like, yeah, they're eating it up. They're excited. The teenager has a really hard time connecting with the foster parents. Because deep down, she's longing for the mom to come back into the picture. And part of the movie is about that. The mom was on drugs, but she's cleaning herself up. And the teenager's hoping and hoping that the mom will eventually come and be ready and approved, and they can all be back together again. And the emotional climax of the story comes when the mom's supposed to come, biological mom, is supposed to come to pick up the teenager and the two kids, and she just never shows up. And the, the foster people have to come and say, yeah, she's using again, she won't be here. And the teenager just breaks down. She just loses it. Um, she's been holding out hope that mom will finally be the mom she wants her to be, right? And the emotional climax of that moment comes as the foster parents surround the teenager and just start reassuring her again and again, no, we love you. We love you. Your home can be with us if you'll have us. We love you. We'll be there for your prom and we'll be there for your wedding. And we'll be there for when you have future kids. We want to be there for you. We want to be there for you. And it's this great picture of, of the willingness of, of these parents to be basically the parents she, she longs for, uh, but she isn't able to have. Folks, some of you have had terrible childhoods. You've had really rough upbringings. Not just with dad, but maybe mom too. Maybe there was lots of arguing in the house. Maybe there was abuse. Maybe it was physical. Maybe it was emotional. Maybe it, was, maybe it was just kind of there, but it, there wasn't a lot of depth. Like, I don't know. Maybe you had a great childhood. But for a lot of us, uh, you maybe didn't. You maybe didn't. But friends, hear this today. God, our Heavenly Father, He will never fail. And He loves you. And He will adopt you and be the Father that you always do. And he longs to bring that healing into your life. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And finally, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe that all that exists in totality is created by God. And we get this great creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. And many people read this as, uh, you know, Primarily just thinking origins, how did the setting come to be? How did we get to where we are today? And that's fine. The Bible is very interested in telling you uh, not just origins, but what it all means, the why and the who. In the ancient world, your identity is established 
as, as you understand your relationship to other things and other people. In fact, it's considered a creation as your identity is set up, as things are named, as things are differentiated. So you get in Genesis, Adam naming things, right? That's a creative act in the, in the ancient world, that he's differentiating identities and who belongs to who and how these relationships work. And so Genesis 1 and 2, you've got the establishing of, of cosmic identity, questions like what are we and who are we? What does it mean to be human? And you get a lot of talk about people and the relationships to other people and relationships to animals and relationships to God and all of that. And as all those categories are laid out, identity is established. And in the ancient world, like I said, that ordering process, that identification process is an act of creation. It's the, perhaps the most important act of creation as, as reality is, is ordered uh, and as God is making this sort of temple creation for him to come and dwell in. This is tremendously, tremendously unique, folks, this idea of how God creates and this setting up of relationships. And I want to read this quote from the pastor, Reverend Adam Lowe. He says this, I think this is so helpful for us about why it's so unique as Christians that we believe God is a creator. He says, in pantheism, people believe that God is in everything. God is in the music stand. God is in the rock, etc. They end up worshipping it. In the pagan Greco-Roman worldview, the physical world is lesser, so they saw the world as having no value. In the secular view, creation has no ultimate purpose, so it can just be exploited. But Christianity says no. We don't worship creation. We worship the one to whom it points. We don't reject creation because this creator has got his hands in the dirt and drawn close to us. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes enfleshed and dwells with us in a physical body. And we don't exploit this world because if the creator made it, it belongs to him and has a purpose. Which means that as Christians, if we believe that our God is the creator of heaven and earth, it has the most amazing implications for how we relate to the world. It means we should revel in creation more than any other. We know its worth and the glory to whom it points. We more than other should delight in the sunrise or the songs of the bird or the taste of food or the sound of music. It's all part of the wonderfully created world made by our God who places us not as careless developers pillaging the earth for any benefit we see fit, nor simply as park rangers who look but don't touch, but instead as loving gardeners, caring, tending, creating, enjoying its goodness, being sustained by its fruit, resting in its beauty, that everything in all creation may point to the glory of God. And this is what we get in Colossians 1.16. Jesus uh, is proclaimed as the one through whom all things have been created through him and for him, which means we see our role as rebuilders. The world we live in is not as it was, nor as it will be, but we simply don't believe our ultimate future will be devoid of a physical world. God created the heavens and the earth, and he will remake both anew, which means we should cry out at illness as we have this morning. And we cry out at the brokenness in the earth, not because we can possibly bring it to completion, 
but because as we do, we point to the one who will. What's that mean for us? What does all this mean for us? There is a God who is knowable, who is good, who loves us like a true father. And this one who is the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is the same one who came as a baby and died on the cross, is the same one who's entered into the brokenness of our world and wants to enter into the brokenness in your life, the sin, the darkness, and invite you into a new life in him. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. As we come to this table, let's come as people reaffirming our faith with the goodness of God, his love for us as a father. For some of you, that's the note that hits home, the relationship with your dad. So let's pray to that end as we come to the table. Those of you that are serving communion, you guys can come up, meet me up here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you love us. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your your word, of these scriptures. Lord, that you draw near to us, that you are knowable, that you are not just distant. Lord, I pray for those this morning who had a terrible relationship with their dads, or a relationship that felt unresolved. And Lord, I ask that this morning as we would come to this table, that you would do a work of healing. Lord, that you would establish yourself as the loving Father we need. Lord, as we think about your work creating heaven and earth, Jesus, we rest in the assurance that what you establish, what you create, what you begin is good. and You will see it through to its completion. Lord, we believe that not just of your world, but of each of us as well. Lord, that each one who's here is loved by you, that you long for us to be in relationship with you. And we can do that simply by coming, saying, Lord, I need you. I repent of my sins. I trust in you as my Lord and my Savior. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe that your resurrection opens up new life. Just as our heads are bowed, if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never embraced God as your Father, I invite you to do that this morning. Invite Him to come into the brokenness. Invite Him to come and make His peace in you. Put aside your agenda. Let God come and reign in your heart. Some of us are here this morning looking for peace, looking for direction. Jesus offers us that new life. So Lord, I pray as we come to this table, there are those here today, perhaps for the first time, want to surrender their lives to you. Lord, would you reaffirm for us as we take this bread and this cup, just how much you love us. In Jesus' name. If you are new to the church, the way we do communion, you're, uh, if, you, if you love Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come. 
There'll be stations set up around the room. You can head to the nearest one and someone will break you off a piece of bread and give you a cup. Uh, there's gluten-free crackers up here as well. When you get uh, the elements, I invite you to come back to your seats and we'll all partake together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, and broke it. He gave it to the disciples saying, take me. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So Lord, pour out your spirit upon us. And upon these gifts of bread and cup, Lord, by your spirit, would you make us one with Christ, that we may be one with all who share this feast, united in ministry around the world through the centuries, as this bread is the body of Christ, would you send us out to be the body of Christ for the world. These are the gifts of God, the people of God. Friends, all is ready. If you know Jesus and want to know him more, I invite you to come to the stage. Let's sing together as we move into the stage. Lord, I come.
Body of Christ given for 